You stand with me for a reading from the gospel. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. This is Matthew 21, verse 33. The words of Jesus. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them and they wanted to arrest him. But they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Have a seat. It feels like such a gift, uh, y'all, to be together. I'm so thankful for it. I think the last time I was in church in person at Trinity, I was here. So in some weird way, it's like a the strangest time warp of all time. Here we are again under very different circumstances, but I feel so thrilled to get to be with you. I feel thrilled to get to sit with a passage like this um, with you in person, face to face, because it has meant a lot to me in my own life just over the last week or so. And so what I have to share with you is gonna be um, really more of a kind of reflectio type reflection of my own time just sitting prayerfully with this passage. So if you are expecting you know, academic brain bombs uh, this morning. You're probably, I'll leave those for trip, you know, and give you more of what just has come out of my, my own time and being with the Lord in a really crazy time in a really strange season. And if ever we needed just time to be like comforted and feel near to and tended to by the Lord, I think it's in a time like this. And I will be honest with you, I sat down with this passage and was not expecting that to happen. This is a tough parable. And um, it came at a tough moment in Jesus' own life. And yet it, it did exactly that for me. And I hope the same will be, be true for you. I, before we get into the story itself, though, I wanna say just a little bit about parables. Uh, Lydia and I have been working together doing a study over on the West Side. And she did such a brilliant sort of summary of what parables are about, what they mean, why Jesus uh, taught in them a lot. And so basically I'm just stealing a lot from her. But I thought what she said was really helpful and would be helpful for our purposes too. Like why did Jesus, uh, what are parables and why did Jesus teach in them so often? 
Uh, parables, if, you, if I were to ask, I kind of go around the room, I'm assuming many of you are familiar with them, could name a few, and you would probably say something like, well, a parable is like the, you know, a short, fictitious, uh, fictitious story that Jesus told trying to illustrate a, a point. And that wouldn't be wrong, that's true, but there's a little bit more to it than that, right? Um, because if I, if I hear that definition, really what comes to mind is something more akin to like a, a fable, a, a short story that Jesus, you know, it's like a, true but not true, it's, and it's all meant to highlight or illustrate a, a moral lesson, a, a point. But actually, so the Hebrew is helpful on this point because in Hebrew, the word parable gets translated uh, more to mean a, it's literally dark saying or something like a riddle, which is different than a fable, right? If I say, what's a fable? What's its purpose? You're probably gonna say, well, I don't know, a fable is something like the tortoise and the hare, you know? Slow and steady wins the race. It's all about, it's this really important but oft forgot hidden truth, you know, that we get to be reminded through a story about cute animals, and, you know, and then we're, some deeper meaning comes to the service. And um, that's true. Riddles are slightly different, right? I mean, if you think about the point of a riddle, it's not just to illustrate something uh, hidden. It, riddles um, are meant to sort of catch you off guard, to um, really, if we're honest, make you realize something that you thought that you knew that maybe you didn't know, to reveal blind spots or biases or assumptions that we have and to unsettle those, to change the way you see things. So if I were to ask you to name an example of a riddle, I don't, one that might come to mind for you, it came to mind for me, is the one about the surgeon and the son. Do you remember this riddle? No? Oh, great. Um, maybe you do. So uh, it goes something like this. Here's the riddle. A man and his son are in a terrible accident and are rushed to the hospital in critical care. The doctor looks at the boy and exclaims, do you remember? Can't operate on this boy, he's my son. How could this be? That's the question, and you're meant to go, hmm, that is tricky. And then the riddle teller says, ah, don't you see? The surgeon is a woman, it's his mother. And the riddle only works if I'm telling it to an audience who assumes that surgeons are generally not women or men. And the whole point of the lit riddle, right, is to expose that false assumption so that the person in the audience goes, oh, gee, wow, I didn't even know that I was a sexist. Man, I sort of am, I didn't even know it, you know? That's the point, it kinda like uncovers this bias, this blind spot, this assumption that we have, and it unsettles you. Actually, in that way, the, Jesus, the parables that he told were very similar. They functioned similarly. That was more their point than sort of revealing this truth that maybe we don't think about as often. Jesus was trying to communicate news about the kingdom of heaven that was surprising and to some even unsettling. And it often violated or contradicted assumptions that they had about what God was like, what the kingdom of heaven would be like. And so the way that Jesus was gonna communicate this truth was to do it indirectly rather than directly through these stories. He wasn't playing games or trying to trick people, but he was trying to unsettle them and get them to see things differently so that he could communicate um, to people a different vision or version of who God is and what the kingdom of heaven was about by exposing the sort of fallacies of their preexisting assumptions about God or the kingdom of heaven. And he wanted to do this slant, as it were, more like a prophet uh, rather than telling it directly. And so um, this, this story has that point. Jesus is telling a story about himself, 
which is also true of his parables. They were typically about him or about the kingdom of heaven, and he's talking primarily to people who would have had different assumptions about who he was and what he was supposed to be doing. And so let's look at the story together. I'm not gonna recount it to you. Hopefully you were listening. Um, it's a story about an owner of a vineyard. Uh, if you're trying to like go through and identify who the major players are in the story, uh, no surprises here, God is the owner of the vineyard. The servants, those who get sent into the vineyard to collect the fruits, those people are uh, the ancient prophets of Israel, those who were sent by God to sort of harvest or collect or reap the fruits of God's kingdom, of the work that Israel was supposed to be doing. The vineyard, by the way, is the kingdom of heaven. It's God's space. Um, and these servants were meant to go and glean all the fruit that should have been being produced by the people who, by these tenants. Um, the fruits, by the way, are things like what? All the things you would expect. Justice, peace, love, mercy. These are the things that the prophets went looking for in ancient Israel. Um, and oftentimes, more than not, they were ridiculed, even beaten, killed, they were persecuted. That's kind of the story that Jesus is telling. So that raises the question, Jesus, is, of course, is the son who, after the ancient prophets of Israel, um, comes the son himself, is Jesus. He gets, he's not received. He is, of course, not yet, but will be himself beaten and killed. And so that leaves the wicked tenants. Who are they? The bad guys of the story, always or most often, Pharisees and scribes. But of course, they are the ones to whom Jesus is talking and they do not assume that they are the wicked tenants in the story. That's kind of the whole point. Uh, they assume that this is a story, most obviously, about um, God's enemies, the enemies of Israel, which is why whenever Jesus looks at them and he says, so, you just heard the story, you heard what happened, what should the owner of the vineyard do to these wicked tenants? Well, if they thought that they were the wicked tenants, they probably would not have said, off with their heads. Did you notice that they didn't just say, you know, punish them? It's like, no, kill them, make it a miserable death. That's my favorite part. No, just, it's not just that they should die, but it, they should die miserably. And then, you know, of course, you're gonna have to find new tenants. That's their response. And, you know, then the twist is Jesus says, aha, from you the kingdom of heaven will be taken away and given to a people who will produce its fruit meaning you are, of course, those who are going to be, uh, who are gonna be lose, who are losing what you've been given. They don't see coming. They don't think it's them. They're assuming, of course, that it's about everybody else, God's enemies, the enemies of Israel. Probably Rome would be a really great candidate, right? Rome had been given sort of temporary control over the vineyard, over Israel. And so in their own minds, Jesus was telling a story about how God was gonna come and cut, cut them down. It was time for him to take the vineyard back. And they were really ready for that. The surprise and the twist, of course, is that it's, it's them. They're the ones who are going to lose it. What does any of that have to do with you? You leave that in the first century and it makes a lot of sense. Historically, we can say yes. Um, that's what Jesus meant at his, in his time and in his day. What does any of that have to do with us? So two observations along those lines that I wanna make. Because it's one thing to be able to say, well, this is what it meant then and there. This is what it meant for, for them, for Jesus at that time. What does that have to do with me? And two things came to mind as I was just asking the Lord that question in my own time of prayer. The first, most obvious observation is that this story sounds like bad news for Pharisees. 
I get paid the big bucks for this kind of work, folks. You know, that's hard. The seminary, just so that I could make those kinds of observations. This story sounds like bad news if you are a Pharisee. And here's what I mean by that, two things. So if I know that that's true, that's kind of like a duh, that's obvious. What does that mean for me is the question. So if it's bad news for Pharisees, what does that mean for me? Well, the first thing that I probably ought to do, if I know that the point of a parable is to unsettle assumptions to expose bias or blind spots, then I probably shouldn't fall into the trap of assuming I'm not a Pharisee, that this is about everybody else. That's just sort of a a first point, right? Okay, well, probably not gonna do that. So then really the first question is, in how, in what ways in my own life am I more like these wicked tenants than I would like to believe or would ever choose to believe is true? In what ways, maybe more specifically, Am I prone to violence in my own heart? Because that's the, that's the thing that sticks out to me if I'm examining these tenants. It's not just that they hadn't been great stewards. It's that their response to being poor stewards was that it had made them increasingly violent, possessive. Is that true for me? And maybe where is it true for me is a better question. So I just asked that question and put before the Lord. Where is there, Lord, a tendency towards violence in my own heart? And I don't just mean physical violence, of course. I mean, where have I become increasingly comfortable with just cutting people down? And there are any number of ways to do that. Do I do that? Do I allow it to happen? Secondly, I might ask a question if I'm like reflecting on what was true of these tenants. The reality was that they were stumbling over, falling over their unmet expectations. They had expectations of who the Messiah would be. And those expectations kept them from seeing Jesus. So then I have to ask the question, in what ways am I stumbling over expectations? And that is an important question for all of us to be asking right now. What are I to feel really pressed because I'm not getting or seeing what I want? And how am I handling that? If we were to go around the room, I suspect that there would be few of us who would say, yes, the world is exactly like I want it to be right now. I'm loving everything that's happening in the world around me. I feel great about this. Which means inevitably that you have a hope or an expectation or something that is not being met. What does it do to you? And is it possible that that is causing you, that unmet expectation to stumble over Jesus? Keep you from seeing him as he is because you're so focused on what you wish he was or was doing. So I start there, that's the first thing. Where, Lord, are those things maybe happening in my own heart? And then uh, secondly, I get to remember, as I did in my own time of prayer, hey, wait a minute, but I'm not a Pharisee. (laughs) And I can say that to you, right? I'm actually not one literally or technically. But even I can say to you, by God's grace, and this feels really important, that I am someone who has been saved by grace. That I have readily accepted the gospel in my life, the good news of Jesus, which is that I am, in spite of all my flaws, many as they may be, the depth of my sin, all the ways that I fail, I am someone who is deeply loved and saved by God's grace. He loves me. And I get to be reminded of the truth Like the whole reason that Jesus taught in these parables was so that he could communicate the good news of the gospel, make sure that 
the goodness of God, all that was really powerfully and true about the kingdom of heaven could make its way into hearts like mine by exposing like false visions and versions of who he is. Most simply put, Jesus doesn't want me to believe things about him that are untrue. And he didn't want anybody to believe things about him or about who God was that were not true. And so he came to make sure that we didn't. That he, he could expose those lies, those distortions. And if that was true in the first century, if that was his heart then, it is most certainly his heart now. And here's why that feels like such a gift. Because in a world where it feels really hard to know what's true or who to trust or what to believe, do any of you feel that way? Am I alone? Everything I read. Oh, hope it's, is it true? Who could know? Who could say? A person sounds like they make sense. They sound credible, sound reliable. Who knows? In that world, in a moment like that, where those kinds of foundation, foundations have been to some degree eroded or taken away from us, I just felt like the calm, good heart of God say over me, you can know me. I made sure of it then and I'll make sure of it now. You can, in fact, know me for who I am. I will make sure that you see me as I am. And so that verse, the stone that the builders rejected have become, has become for us the cornerstone, I just, it was like ringing in my ears and in my heart. Jesus Christ is my firm foundation. He is a place for me to stand. I can know him. I can see him. And that doesn't mean that I stopped questioning things or wrestling with things. It was just, it felt like the fatherly heart of God over me to say, you don't have to be afraid. I'm with you in this, you know? So, we're not Pharisees. Those of us who hope not to be, we're recipients of grace, good heart of God. All right, so that's the first sort of observation. This parable is bad news for Pharisees. And the second thing, that was one point with like two subpoints for you. Some Candler students in the room, so if you're back there, you know. The second point is we've been given the kingdom of heaven. That's the observation. God is the owner of the vineyard. His heart is to entrust what he owns into the hands of people. And Jesus says that vineyard was taken out of the hands of Pharisees, those who were not producing its fruit and put into the hands of people who would produce its fruit. Well, if I'm just thinking about that historically, well, that means to some degree the church was that people and I guess that's me. So I guess that means we've been given charge, the kingdom of heaven, which means we are the people now who are responsible for tending and cultivating and harvesting the fruits of God's heart, his work in the world. And if you're like me, I don't know, on the three, I'm an Enneagram, and so when I see something like that, I'm like, wow, it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of work to make sure that I do better get it right. All right, I've been given the kingdom, and I get no time at all to just think, wow, God, what a good gift, before my brain is going, I am ready to achieve and succeed and make sure that I get this exactly right. And so then you're robbed of some of the joy, right? And so that's what happens in my own heart. I hear the voice of the Lord say, you've been given the kingdom of heaven and I'm so tempted immediately to go, wow, that's a lot of responsibility. Better make sure I get it right. But here's the thing about parables. If the point of a parable is to go to work in my heart to expose my 
easiest, most obvious assumptions. Like the things that come most readily to my mind. Oh, you, Jesus says that and I assume you mean this or I feel you mean that. Then is that what Jesus is really saying? You've been given a lot of work, a big responsibility, better make sure you get it right. And so I just put that before the Lord. If it's not that, Lord, what is it? Help me hear this the way you mean for me to hear it and receive it. And you know what came to mind in asking that question was, um, for me, I started, I immediately, sitting on my couch, thought about what it was like growing up in my grandparents' garden as a kid. I was just there in my mind back in their garden all of a sudden. And um, no exaggeration, my grandparents had a magical garden when I was a kid growing up. And to this day, I, you know, you'll never know if I've exaggerated its majesty in my mind, but it's gotten like progressively good as I've gotten older, it just gets better. But it, I mean, it was an incredible place. I had great vines and uh, apple trees and orchard and watermelons and these roses that were you know, huge, big as my face. That's what I remember, just putting my face right in the middle of them. I loved playing there. And I remember I got to work in it with my grandpa, uh, which wasn't work really. I felt like it was work at the time, like I had the very important responsibility of like digging up the potatoes, right, or plugging things off the vine. Really, the truth is I got to do just enough to feel like I knew my way around, like it belonged to me and I had some share in it so that I could run in the house and say to my grandma, as I often did, look what we grew, <laughs> what we did. My grandpa did all the work. You know, he was the one who tilled and plowed and planted, just like the owner of the vineyard is the one who dug and put up a fence and built a watchtower. And in thinking about that, the invitation I do believe from Jesus is, what if you just like get to enjoy being with me and a part of this, and if you can enjoy it in the ways that you're meant to, then you're inevitably taking part in the work that that's what it will mean to achieve, to succeed, to do it right, is just to enjoy being in it and being a part of it, which then makes a lot of sense out of what Jesus said elsewhere about the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the parables where he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a guy who finds a hidden treasure in a field and in his joy goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy the field? He's just so stinking excited about the fact that this treasure's his and he gets to keep it and be a part of it. Or like that merchant who finds this incredibly rare, beautiful pearl and he has it and he treasures it. For Jesus, the kingdom of heaven being a part of it, working in it, stewarding it, is to be a person who is a part of, in on, the joy of heaven the goodness of God, his love, his heart for the world and for people around him. And if you could be somebody who was in on that, then the fruits of his kingdom, his spirit, they're a part of your life. Mercy, compassion, justice, joy, love. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Psalm 51. Do you remember that? It's created me a clean heart, oh God, that Psalm David wrote. David wrote that Psalm at least traditionally believed David wrote that psalm in the darkest hour of his life. He's having to come to terms with the depths of his own sin, the Pharisee in his own heart. And one of the lines of that psalm that stands out to me every time I hear it the most is when David says in his desperation, on the brink of losing everything, his kingdom, his reputation, his place, all you know, the good job, well done, good and faithful, all that is 
up for grabs. And you know what David's fear is? The thing he's afraid of the most, he says in the Psalm, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What that says to me is that that is a man who knew that of all that he had to lose, all that he risked losing, the thing that he feared losing the most was the joy of being in God's presence, just being with the Lord. He didn't wanna live the rest of his life without the nearness of the Holy Spirit, just being with God. And that speaks to me. Because what if I treasured the presence of God that way? What if that was the invitation, not the work, getting it right? We are a culture obsessed with getting it right, theologically, politically, spiritually. I wanna have the right friends, the right stuff. And what if Jesus was saying over a culture, what if it's not about getting it right? What if it's learning to treasure things more than you do? Just like being with God and treasuring that and being with the people around you and treasuring that and caring less about getting it right. Because when that starts to go at work in my heart, then I feel liberated, I feel free. A weight's been lifted off. And that is the genius of Jesus' parables. For those for whom they were bad news, they were bad news. But if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, if you long to be with God, then it's the gospel. It's good news, it sets us free. We read Philippians 3 before we, I came up here. Do you guys have it in front of you? Do you have access to it? Can you see it? I'm gonna close with this. I just wanna read it to you again. If you don't, it's okay, you can just listen. This passage, though, is one of my favorites because if you're trying to think about what it sounds like to be liberated from having a Pharisee's heart, from being so obsessed with getting it right and doing all the right things to being liberated by the gospel, this is what it sounds like. And I think it's why I resonate with this passage so much. It, it makes me wanna dance every time I hear it because I feel so happy for Paul and I feel so hopeful for myself that what was true for him can be true for me. And so listen to it through this lens. But Paul says, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, meaning I got reason to believe I did it right. If anyone else has reason to be confident, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, no less, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Check, 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 check. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Jesus. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all these things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain him and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in him, the righteousness from God based on faith. I wanna know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
That is the testimony of a heart that has been set free to love. And I think that's what Jesus wanted. He was looking into the eyes of people who were very religious and who had gotten it all right and they just forgot somehow along the way to love people. May it not be so of us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.